Welcome to Pivot Point of View. This is Becky Pearson, and the goal of this podcast is to bring you health and wellness tips for you and the horse you rode in on. Hey, everybody. It's Becky and Andrew from Pearson Physical Therapy, and today we wanted to sit down and visit about different things that people may not necessarily know that physical therapy does. And this is October, and it's Physical Therapy Month, so we thought it would be a great way to... uh, help people learn a little bit more about us. Yep, I think we, we hear this a lot. People get referred here um, and they're not quite sure why they got sit here by a physician. And so we thought we'd run down a few of those things. Or we might just be talking to somebody, run into somebody and they'll mention, hey, I got this going on. And, and we say, well, you know, we actually help treat people with that. And they're like, oh, you do? I didn't think physical therapy had anything to do with that. So. So we're going to run through a few of those things. Um, Do you want to start or do you want me to start? Sure. Um, One of the things that uh, people may or may not realize that we treat and uh, is like back and neck pain. Um, Oftentimes people think that they have to go to the chiropractor to have their back or neck adjusted. And um, we, that's actually the majority of, of what we see. And it also doesn't mean that you have to stop going to the chiropractor. We get a lot of referrals from the chiropractor and physical therapy with chiropractic can actually be a great thing. So um, if you're having back and neck pain and those adjustments aren't staying very long that the chiropractor does, probably the part that is missing is the muscular strength to that and and the retraining that muscle memory. So um, definitely give us a shout if you have back and neck pain. Right, and along with that, in the neck pain category, we see um, headaches. Um, that's another category of, of uh, treatment that we, we see a lot. And I'll even admit, when I was in physical therapy school and we started talking about headaches, I was like, what are, what are we going to do for headaches? And it's probably been one of my most um, gratifying um, patient types to see because the benefits, I mean, anybody who has headaches, if you can get rid of those or, or lessen them by a significant amount, I mean, that's great. And, and so the big thing there with headaches is that you can get lots of different types of headaches, but the, the headaches that we treat have to do with muscle dysfunction. So there'll be some sort of uh, strain or repetitive stress or a, a postural position problem, um, and that affects the muscles all around the neck. Um, sometimes we also see a lot of people who have had past car accidents or coming off of a horse around here or getting run over by a, by a steer or something like that. Uh, so we see a lot of those kind of situations that may actually be years and years in the past, but they've continued to stay with the person and um, contributed to those headaches. And so loosening all those up, getting the posture better, getting the muscles uh, in a better working order um, can really make a huge difference. So. To go along with that, a lot of times we treat headache patients with dry needling, and um, so people often don't realize we do that. Well, I did do another podcast on that, um, of the dry needling and what a benefit. Uh, that's been a game changer, I think, in our treatment of headaches. A lot of success with people that may have not received a benefit, really, in, in the past. So that one is has been really, really good for us to add. Yeah, I think um, what we find a lot, so when we do exams on people who have that and and we can tell that the neck is contributing, is you find lots of little um, hot spots or trigger points where the muscle is really bound up and restricted and you can tell that there's not movement, there's not blood flow, and you can do a lot with your hands and um, sometimes ultrasound electrical therapy, but but yeah, the needling takes it into some of those 
areas that we can't quite reach with our fingers. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been good. And, and we use that in other um, diagnoses too, like uh, rotator cuff tendonitis, um, old scar tissue. It's really good in uh, breaking up old scars that um, have adhered down and they've created pain or dysfunction because of that. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, like I said, we can get deeper than what our, our hands can get when we use the needles. Yeah. Um, another thing that some of you may know, some of you may not, um, falls and balance, uh, falls prevention and balance. So um, as people get uh, older and maybe they become more sedentary, uh, we really can make a huge difference in decreasing people's falls. And so if they're at home and um, they're starting to fall a little bit more, it's amazing what physical therapy I think can do in even just a few short visits. Uh, a lot of times it's a matter of leg strength. Um, sometimes it's their, their body's awareness of where they are in space, so their proprioception. Uh, all, uh, there's a lot of different things that play a part of balance, and so we can really help out with that as well. I think, um, again, there's, there's, there's different things that can contribute to unsteadiness, um, but one of them can just be a general debility, meaning, you know, as we get older, we get into a lot of repetition, we get into um, a lot more inactivity, and the body sort of slides a little bit, and we don't see that rejuvenation from daily movement that we normally get, um, and, and the strengthening. And so just getting on a, a nice regiment uh, where you're moving the body regularly, strengthening up those things, challenging it in ways that you don't normally uh, do on a typical day. Um, there are situations too, uh, one condition called BPPV, which is benign positional proximal vertigo, uh, which is where the, where the actual the room or the world spins on you. And it's usually when you're transitioning, you're rolling over, you're getting out of bed or bending over to pick something up off the floor. All of a sudden, it'll just be a very significant uh, vertigo spinning. And that can be an inner ear dysfunction. And that's something we can also help with. Um, again, it's something that's not even really related to muscle and body and position or anything like that. It's, it's an actual inner ear dysfunction um, that we can get into some positioning stuff to actually get that to resolve. So that's something too that we screen for to see if we think that might be a problem. But. And that is honestly a very, um, I don't want to say quick fix, but that comes around really fast. It's really rewarding to see those people because they, a lot of them will walk in here and they can barely walk. Right. because they are so dizzy or they throw up because they are so dizzy and honestly they get relief like that day oftentimes and it, it will still linger but a significant improvement even after the first treatment so that one's really cool to, yeah. to do. Um, shoulder pain you know people a lot of times do know that yeah we have some shoulder pain but or that we treat shoulder pain but um, sometimes they don't know that they can come to us first and um, they think, well, do I have to have a doctor's prescription? Do I do I come to you? What do I need? Um, and I love treating shoulder pain. I think there's a lot of different reasons people can have sh shoulder pain. And um, I feel like we do a good job of honing in on what is probably causing the shoulder pain the best that we can without having MRI eyes or you know x-ray vision. Um, but I think we do a great job of managing shoulder I think one of the conversations I get into a lot with shoulders is because shoulder pain is fairly prevalent, uh, especially with a, a working population that uses their hands and pushes and pulls and lifts a lot. Um, but 
and even that can be even um, doing housework on repetitive like like vacuuming a lot and scrubbing and all that kind of stuff all wears on the shoulders the shoulders are are amazing because they're so versatile but it also makes them kind of vulnerable because the repetitive loads they can't handle that a lot um, so what we see a lot is when a shoulder goes on and does get an MRI or maybe gets a scope and then we get that feedback and a lot of times it's real similar. So you, there's a lot of real typical patterns of wear and tear on shoulders that we can spot pretty easily when people come in and tell us what's been going on with it. And so we know right away these are the things that we can help with. You know, And if it's something that's sort of outside of that or you had a, a nasty fall or something then, then yeah, we wanna make sure that that gets checked out and there isn't something more significant going on like a fracture or a major tear or something like that. But, but yeah, that's something that we kind of know it's, um, therapy, you know, consistently helps with that. And even the ones, I mean, we see ones that, that they think, oh, this, this harm is not coming up. I really tore something terrible. And, and sometimes when you go through the process of what we do and after a few visits and maybe it's a couple of weeks and that arm starts to come up more and more, you get the inflammation down, you get some of the muscles working and, and activated better. It's, it's amazing. Sometimes you swear that they were heading to surgery the first couple of times and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe a month later, they're reaching up above their head saying, hey, this feels great. So, And I don't think people realize we do prehab either. So uh, sometimes people do know they have a rotator cuff tear. They're going to have to have surgery, but maybe that arm is not moving very well. And so the doctor would rather have the arm have full motion before surgery because your outcome is going to be a lot better versus if they went in there and they fixed the tear and you were locked up anyways, well, then we have to fight the old adhesions plus then all the, the new inflammation from the surgery. So getting that range of motion before you have surgery is also very important. I think a big thing of what physical therapy does in a lot of scenarios, but especially like in acute injuries, is we're trying to get the body to shift out of this state of being very sensitive and lots of inflammation and that just creates a lot of dysfunction and restriction and that, yeah you want the body to be back to as normal as possible within reason before you're going to uh, move forward with a surgery um, or sometimes that's that's all you need sometimes and you find out hey you know this is working good for me maybe i don't even need that surgery so i think the trend that i've seen in the 15 16 years that i've practiced is that Surgeons, which is good, I think, are not jumping to surgery real fast. They're, they're saying, well, go try therapy first. Even if we think, hey, yeah, I think you're probably going to have to have surgery. A lot of times they're saying, well, go to therapy first. Do four to six weeks of therapy. Let's get it working better. Let's get it moving better. If we still feel like you need surgery, your shoulder is going to be in a much better place for after surgery. So, yeah. Yeah. And it usually makes rehab afterwards, whether it's a knee, a shoulder, um, it usually makes it a lot easier and I think it takes some of the anxiety away of you know um, if you've never been to physical therapy and you had surgery and you're coming in and all you think of is oh my gosh they're gonna crank on my shoulder that I just had fixed or they're gonna crank on my knee um, which is not the case um, but it helps decrease that anxiety because you get to know us um, you understand a little bit more what's gonna happen in the whole process and so it just makes that stressful period after surgery a little less stressful, for sure. Uh, next topic we'll look at is foot pain. So this is a, we hear the term, I'm sure most people have heard plantar fasciitis. So it tends to be a bit of a big bucket term. Um, anything that's 
even remotely around your foot sometimes get diagnosed as plantar fasciitis. Um, and there's even some speculation, does, does the plantar fascia eat really the tissue that's inflamed or is it something else in the foot that's inflamed? The other thing we hear a lot is heel spurs. Um, I just had a gentleman later the, earlier this summer who came in with a heel spur, that same scenario where, well, the doctor told me to come here. I don't know why I'm even here. I have a heel spur. What can you do for a heel spur? And really, we can't fix a heel spur. I mean, if you have a heel spur, you have a heel spur. But a lot of times that heel spur means your foot is, is being overstressed, and it means it's probably in a weakened state and, and it's getting a lot of wear and tear on it. And so when I went and examined this gentleman's foot, he did not have pain where his heel, heel spur would have been. He had pain where these muscles and tendons come down and help support your arch. And they were very stiff, very inflamed, very sensitive. And his foot basically needed to get calmed down. It needed to get re-stretched out. It needed to get strengthened back up. And sometimes we also look at, does the foot need extra support like orthotics, which is something we can also help with. So. Yeah, and I, I think, um, I don't know the stats on it, but they have done imaging x-rays of people that have foot pain and not foot pain. And there are a lot of people out there that are walking around with heel spurs that are asymptomatic. So they don't have any pain at all, but they have a heel spur. So just because a heel spur shows up on an x-ray does not necessarily mean that that's where your pain's coming from. So um, don't get worried. Like you said, that people think, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're not going to take away this heel spur. But we can improve the muscle function, the foot mechanics, all that to decrease the amount of stress on that. So, um, and then hopefully, again, avoid surgery if possible. Um, one of the other things that people, um, it's kind of a yucky topic. Most people don't like to talk about it, but um, we do treat incontinence. So um, some leakage, uh, if you'd say um, pelvic floor weakness, it is, um, it is very beneficial to try pelvic floor strengthening before you would go through a surgery like, um, sling, you know, bladder sling surgeries I've heard of. Um, lots of really... I think it sounds like awful treatments. <laughs> um, it, the pelvic floor is basically a set of muscles and they can be strengthened as well. So if that's a topic that you um, are interested in, um, be sure to give us a call and we can dive into that a little bit more. I think along that times we see a lot of times it's more with females who a lot of times have had, kid, had children, um, a lot of times maybe more than one, and down it might not be right away, but down the road, um, sometimes it'll be pelvic floor issues, it might be SI, tailbone issues, it might be um, uh, crocanteric bursitis, so all of that around the pelvis and the hip area all works as a, as a team, all those muscles and structures that have to support you along with your core through your midsection, it all works as a team. And so if there is weakness and you have, we'll say, the, the trauma of, of giving birth, and, and a lot of times I have this conversation with moms a lot, is that, you, you know, it's, it's not fair, you have to go through all that. Then you have to take care of your, your kids, and, and if you have multiple, you don't have time to go back and get strong, strengthened back up. And so you just sort of are left in this state where the, the pelvis and the hips and the core are sort of in a vulnerable state. And so sometimes it, that can develop in incontinence, it can develop pelvic floor pain, um, you know, buttock pain, low back pain, all of these things that are all in that area. And essentially, everything is in a weakened sort of unstable, not really tight and strong position there. And so it's vulnerable to some of these, some of these, uh, some of these symptoms. Yeah. yeah. And if, 
you know, a lot of times moms don't take time to do because they are so busy with that. But if they don't take time to take care of themselves, then they can't take care of other people as well. So, yeah. And I think a lot of times they don't realize how long that will last. But it's, and that's just from my appreciation treating patients that, you know, maybe they're in their 50s, 60s, and they're continuing to have, and they're like, yeah, I've had this for years kind of thing. And it, what finally brings them in here is it's gotten so severe. A lot of times it'll be like a hip or side is pain on the side of the hip and they can barely walk because it's so much pain and they can't roll over and lay on that or it might be in the pelvis more. So, so yeah, I mean, but it can be something that um, if you get on that soon after um, having a baby, and it doesn't have to be just that, but, um, but that's a common scenario we hear. Um, but, uh, but yeah, any of that that has to do with anywhere in the pelvis, it's a lot of it's muscular based. Mm -hmm. And if you can get the muscles and the position and the core all working well together, then, then you can see some great results. Absolutely. And there are, um, you know, we can do electrical stimulation to that, which, um, you know, it does not have to be invasive at all. It can just surround the area. So um, there are more than just exercises that we can use for that as well. So a lot of different techniques for sure. And, um, Stroke rehab. Sometimes I think people forget about that. Um, and there's a lot, you know, it isn't just um, getting people up and walking, but improving that fine motor motion as much as you can. You know, sometimes after a stroke, uh, we're not sure what is going to return and what isn't. And if we don't work through that, um, oftentimes things don't come back as well. So, so physical therapy after having a stroke is I think uh, I think it's kind of a given that that people go through rehab right after the stroke for the first few weeks or a few months or so. But um, occasionally we'll have people that, like we had a gentleman here again earlier this summer who had had a stroke years ago, and you know part of that we can't fix. Part of it there's been damage to the brain, and there's just there's just not a there's not an activation. But the system's also kind of plastic, meaning it can adapt, and if you if you give it the, the right uh, intention, then it's going to do its best to try to get back as well, as well as it can. And again, there's some situations you just you can't regain strength in areas if the brain isn't is damaged like in that, uh, in that situation. But, um, you know, improving, there's still margins of improvement, meaning we can still make some improvement to where they feel like they can transition out of bed easier, they can walk with, without needing to put as much force into their walker or their, or their cane, um, you know. And a big one, I think, is not as much what we call burden on the healthcare uh, giver or, you know, the family member who's helping out, or if you do have a healthcare worker that comes into the house, you know, not as much strain on their back and shoulders because the, the individual can help get out of the chair easier because they're stronger. Um, they can roll over easier because they're stronger again. So if you can minimize the chance that you're overstressing your, your helper, then that's great, too. Yeah, there's a lot of positives to continue it on because that doesn't just resolve and go away. It's going to stay with you the rest of your life to some degree, depending on what the, what the severity of the stroke is. So. I think another one uh, is pediatrics. Um, sometimes people don't realize that, that young children, even infants or, or newborns, um, can, can benefit from therapy. Um, the one that's the, the most common probably is uh, what's called torticollis, which is a neck that is kind of twisted to the side like this. This muscle here, your sternocleidomastoid muscle, it gets overactivated and kind of spasmy and holds the head in this position. And so then you get into issues that the, the baby has trouble 
being able to turn and when they lay down they always want to lay on the same side and then they might lay on the, the soft or their heads kind of softer when they're babies so they'll get into a flat spot sometimes and so getting things so that they're stretched out and more balanced and getting those muscles in the neck and the in the trunk so that they're going in the right path the way that they're supposed to so a lot of times pediatrics especially when they're young is is patient or not patient is uh, parent education so we teach the parents um, how to hold the baby in the correct way so that you minimize the chance of, of um, amplifying that or feeding into it and try to stretch it out. You can't really obviously give uh, a baby a home exercise program the way you can an adult. Um, and a lot of times if you try to just stretch it, um, you know, do like a neck stretch like that, even though you can a little bit, it, it doesn't work very well. So you kind of have to find positions, you have to find things that are almost like play, um, things where you... Um, put them in different activities and positions where you're promoting uh, normal neck muscle development. Um, so that's a, that's a common one. There's, there's other developmental ones that uh, basically you're trying to get that young patient to, to move forward and hit their milestones um, and not have any trouble. Absolutely. And on the other end of the spectrum, lifespan, um, arthritis. Oftentimes people don't think that we can help arthritis because well, it's damaged to the joint, and what can you do about that? But uh, kind of what we talked about with the heel spur, you know, just because there is damage to an area or extra arthritis doesn't mean that we can't affect the muscles, um, the joint mobility, decrease the inflammation in there, because that's what arthritis is. It is an inflamed joint, and, um, and sometimes there can be some extra calcification and things like that, but we can sure help improve the joint mobility, get the joint fluids flowing better, so then there's usually less pain involved in that joint. Um, and again, that's something that we often treat arthritis before people would go through a total knee rehab, uh, and it will really make the total knee replacement quite a bit easier to go through the, the recovery afterwards. And I think you mentioned before with the with x-ray imaging of seeing bone spurs, the same thing is true. And when they do x-rays, uh, looking at all of your joints, as you see, once you get to a certain age, you know, sort of in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you're gonna naturally see arthritis. And so I think some people hear that term and they think, oh no, that's that's just the end of, of me. I'm you know? for, yeah. <laughs> and and the, the reality is, is that everybody gets that. And so it's probably varies depending on your genetics and depending on what you do. I mean, if you've done heavy manual labor your whole life, chances are you might have a little bit more than the person who doesn't. But yeah, that's, I think the, the overview uh, to me when working with uh, people who have arthritis is, is movement is therapeutic. And if you just have that simple statement is that a lot of times when you have somebody who has arthritis, they've gotten into a habit of not moving normally for years potentially. And so if you get some movement, uh, on a regular basis and we get things uh, loosened up and the muscles working better, that almost always helps with people. It might not completely take, completely take it away, but it'll get it down to where they're like, hey, it's pretty minimal compared to what I, I can live with this. I hear, I hear that a lot, I can live with this. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, one of those key things is that, um, just the education of that, that, that realizing that they don't move them as, much as they should mm -hmm. and us finding ways to where it doesn't have to be like 
way up here, like a ton of, of heavy lifting, heavy, you know, the exercises we're talking about are what I call, call staying under the radar. So if we can stay below where we know we're going to trigger some of that pain, then it's not going to continue to promote this repetitive cycle of inflammatory aggravation. So there's, there's kind of a happy medium there where you want to move, but you don't want to overload your body too much. Getting that correct muscle balance, whether it's in the back, because a lot of people have arthritis in their back, knees, shoulders, you know, those are feet. Those are common areas for people to have some arthritis, but getting that good muscle balance again of stretching the tight muscles and strengthening the weak muscles. And I think we're both really good at giving people home exercise programs um, so that once you're done with physical therapy, you know what you can do to manage this long term now whether or not they do it that's the next case but um our our philosophy is we'll give you the tools and the information that you need to be able to be successful once you're done in therapy um and and it's up to you to keep doing it i think uh one of the one is kind of similar to what we've already been talking about is a general post-surgical um, situation and that can be it's kind of similar to the post-stroke um is that you know, maybe it should say it's, it's normal for the for the physician to order a few weeks of therapy, maybe four to six weeks of therapy. And then you say, OK, well, I completed my therapy. I'm good to go and you move on. You might find that six months later, a year or two years later, you know, you might say, oh, I'm still having some trouble with that knee or that shoulder or whatever. And then you say, well, I did my therapy. I should be good. You know, well, sometimes everybody's a little different on how fast they recover and how much recovery or how much rehab they need. So. You might find that you've gotten a good amount back, but you're not back to where you want to be or where you think you should be. And so kind of revisiting that and looking at, okay, did we, did we really achieve as much as we could have, uh, or can we make some more gains with that? That's, that's a common scenario we see where people come back or we see people and they say, well, have we had any surgeries in the past? Have you had any falls? Have you had any of this? And you know, a lot of times there's something in that history and that background that leads you to realize why this is having the trouble it's having. And we realized, well, we need to get that back a little bit stronger or get it moving a little bit more. We didn't quite get to where it needed to be at that time. I think I see that a lot with total hip replacements. Um, because a, a lot of our docs in the area aren't ordering therapy after that because most people are pretty ambulatory they do after good, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but they don't necessarily fully rehab those hip muscles. Um, people are pretty good at compensating for weak muscles in their hips. And so, but what we see then later is maybe they start having some back pain or like you talked about some hip bursitis type of stuff because they're waddling instead of walking in a nice smooth fashion forward. And um, so the, the total hip replacements I think um, is one that we can still make a big difference even years afterwards. It'd be great if we could get you in earlier after the total hip replacement, but um, that is one that I really see a big difference that we can, we can change people a lot after they've had weakness there for quite a while. Yeah, I think, I think you know, we, we hear it from patients too. I mean, some people realize that they, they do come to us. They say, hey, I wanted, to go, I wanted to do therapy. I told my doctor I wanted to do therapy. And they say, well, the, the situation that hip is replaced and, it, and it's a good solid right away. You can walk on it right away. And a lot of times they're like, it feels good. And then you don't realize that you still have all of that dysfunction, all of that weakness leading up to most people who have had a hip replacement, it's due to arthritis. Um, and so you've had a lot of 
years of, of weakness dysfunction before you got to that point where you had to replace. And because the hip is new, doesn't necessarily mean all that strength just bounces back like that. So, so yeah, going through and taking a little extra effort to build up the strength uh, really can make a big difference. And, and we have somebody right now in that exact scenario who the hip did great. Um, did replacement and they realized they just weren't work, walking the, the way they wanted to. They knew they were off and so they went back to the doctor and said, hey, can we get this better? And so they were therapy and she's uh, she's on her way. Yeah, yeah, doing great. Anything else you can think of? Uh, no, I think just in general, most of these things that, that have in common is that there's, um, even though you wouldn't necessarily think that it's physical therapy related, there's some sort of muscle dysfunction um, going on, or there's some sort of, you know, chronic inflammatory sensitivity thing. And those are things that we, we are really good at, at helping with. And so uh, it doesn't really matter where it's at in the body. If there's some sort of joint muscle dysfunction, posture dysfunction that's contributing, or the body just gets into overload repetition, it doesn't matter where it's at. Sometimes it's just a matter of being able to see it from our point of view. And I said, oh, now that you kind of, you know, make me see what you're seeing, now I realize why this is going to help me. So, yeah. yeah. And and sometimes um, you don't necessarily get as much time with your doctor as what you'd hope for explaining it, or, or this is all new information that they lay on you and you're trying to process it. And so... Uh, a lot of our evals are just really explaining what the diagnosis is and then how does how is that manifesting in what we see in the clinic. You know, it, okay, you have a bulging disc in your back, and so that weakness that you're feeling in your leg or that sensation that you're feeling in your leg, this is why it is that way. And so I think sometimes we end up being kind of interpreters, if you'd say, as to what is the um, – what what is the diagnosis from the doctor and then how that plays out in your body and then what's the plan to improve that. Um, and so we, we like to take a lot of time and help people um, kind of navigate that pathway, if you'd say. Yeah, I think, I think education and information is very empowering and we find over and over that if people understand you know, without going into a terrible amount of detail of, of anatomy and physiology and all that kind of stuff, but if they kind of understand how the, the body works a little bit, and then they understand how these dysfunctional patterns can start, then it's almost like like a relief, because they're like, oh, okay, this is manageable, we can we can handle this, you know? Yeah. You know, initially some people are really feeling discouraged and, and very uh, frustrated that, that there's no way out of this, you know? And so, um, if you can get perspective on it, sometimes these conditions that that seem like, hey, I'm just stuck with this, um, can really make some, some big gains. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully um, people got a little information out of this. If there was something in this video or, or the podcast that you're listening to um, that you have more questions about, feel free to reach out to us.